a man regresses, a nobody becomes a somebody, and an orange rules. On the next Selected Shorts, stories about how we're perceived. Stay with us. I'm Hope Davis, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. The stories in today's program have a number of things in common. They're about relationships, they've got a touch of the supernatural, and they're about how others see us. It's human nature to wonder how people perceive us and how those perceptions change as we fade into the memories of others. In the next hour, three imaginative contemporary fiction writers take on this question with heart, glee, and more than a little ingenuity. But before we jump in, I wanted to introduce myself for those of you who may not remember me. If you could see my face, you might recognize me from movies such as About Schmidt or American Splendor or Greenland, or you may have seen me in recent series including Your Honor. I'm also a regular at Selected Shorts, so fans of the show might know my voice for that reason. And as this show is about how we are remembered, the producers asked me what I thought my legacy would be. The first thing that popped into my head was, I don't have time to imagine what my legacy might be. I'm too busy thinking up what to make for dinner. Then I realized, I really hope this is something my family and friends remember about me. That I feel it's really important to sit down to a well-made meal at the end of the day, and whenever possible, with plenty of family and friends, and won't everyone please leave their phones on a table in the hallway. No screens at the table, please. Our first story comes from writer Amy Bender. Her novels include The Butterfly Lampshade and The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake. We at Shorts are partial to her short stories, of course, and have featured them on multiple occasions. Bender has a big imagination. She underpins fantastical fairy tale plots with a keen understanding of her characters in her lives. And there's usually more than a healthy dose of humor. Bender's story, The Rememberer, is about more than just memory. The story's narrator tells us right away that her partner is going through what she labels a reverse evolution. And something that begins as a fear about civilization and progress transforms a relationship, figuratively and literally. Reading the story is a Tony Award-winning theater stalwart, Marion Seldes. Her career spanned decades and included stage shows such as Death Trap, A Delicate Balance, and Three Tall Women. Seldes died in 2014, but Shorts was lucky enough to work with her during the few pauses she had between Broadway commitments. Over the years, she performed nearly two dozen short stories on tour and at Shorts's home theater, Symphony Space. Everything from farcical tales by Saki to Shirley Jackson's iconic chiller, The Lottery. Now, here's Marion Seldes performing The Rememberer by Amy Bender. My lover is experiencing reverse evolution. I tell no one. I don't know what happened, only that one day he was my lover, and the next he was some kind of ape. <laughs> it's been a month now and now he's a sea turtle. I keep him on the counter in a glass baking pan filled with salt water. Ben, I say to his small protruding head, can you understand me? And he stares with eyes like little droplets of tar and I drip tears into the pan, a sea of me. He is shedding a million years a day. I'm no scientist, but this is roughly what I figured out. I went to the old biology teacher at the community college, and I asked him for an approximate timeline of our evolution. He was irritated at first. He wanted money. 
I told him I'd be happy to pay, and then he cheered up quite a bit. I can hardly read his timeline. He should have typed it. And it turns out to be wrong. According to him, the whole process should take about a year. But from the way things are going, I think we have less than a month left. At first, people called on the phone and asked me, where was Ben? Why wasn't he at work? Why did he miss his lunch date with those clients? His out-of-print special-ordered book on civilization had arrived at the bookstore. Would he please pick it up? I told them he was sick, a strange sickness, and to please stop calling. The stranger thing was, they did. They stopped calling. After a week, the phone was silent, and Ben, the baboon, <laughs> sat in a corner by the window, wrapped up in drapery, chattering to himself. Last day I saw him human. He was sad about the world. That was not unusual. He was always sad about the world. It was a large reason why I loved him. We'd sit together and be sad and think about being sad and <laughs> sometimes discuss sadness. <laughs> On his last human day, he said, Annie, don't you see? We're all getting too smart. Our brains are just getting bigger and bigger, and the world dries up and dies when there's too much thought and not enough heart. He looked at me pointedly, blue eyes unwavering. Like us, Annie, we think far too much. I sat down. I remembered how the first time we had sex, I left the lights on, keeping my eyes wide open, and concentrated really hard on letting go. And then I noticed that his eyes were open too. And in the middle of everything, we sat down on the floor and had an hour-long conversation about poetry. <laughs> it was all very peculiar. It was all very familiar. Another time, he woke me up in the middle of the night lifted me off the pale blue sheets, led me outside to the stars and whispered, look, Annie, look, there's no space for anything but dreaming. I listened sleepily, wandered back to bed and found myself wide awake, staring at the ceiling, unable to dream at all. But Ben fell asleep right away. I crept back outside. I tried to dream up to the stars, but I didn't know how to do that. I tried to find a star no one in all of history had ever wished on before, and I wondered what would happen if I did. On his last human day, he put his head in his hands and sighed, and I stood up and kissed the entire back of his neck covered that flesh, made wishes there, because I know no woman had ever been so thorough, had ever kissed his every inch of skin. I coated him. What did I wish for? I wished for good. That's all, just good. My wishes became generalized long ago in childhood. I learned quick the consequence of wishing specific I took him in my arms and made love to him, my sad man. See, we're not thinking, I whispered in his ear while he kissed my neck. We're not thinking at all. And he pressed his head into my shoulder and held me tighter. And afterward, we went outside again. There was no moon, and the night was dark. He said he hated talking and just wanted to look into my eyes and tell me things that way. I let him, and it made my skin lift the things in his look. Then he told me he wanted to sleep outside for some reason. And in the morning, when I woke up in bed, I looked out to the patio, 
And there was an ape sprawled on the cement, great furry arms covering his head to block out the glare of the sun. Even before I saw his eyes, I knew it was him. And once we were face to face, he gave me his same sad look. And I hugged those enormous shoulders. I didn't even really care then, not at first. I didn't panic and call 911. I sat with him outside and smoothed the fur on the back of his hand. And when he reached for me, I said no, loudly. And he seemed to understand and pulled back. I have limits here. <laughs> we sat on the lawn together and ripped up the grass. I didn't miss human Ben right away. I wanted to meet the ape too, to take care of my lover like a son, a pet. I wanted to know him every possible way, but I didn't realize that he wasn't coming back. Now I come home from work and I look for his regular size shape walking and worrying and realize over and over that he's gone. I pace the halls. I chew whole packs of gum in mere minutes. I review my memories and make sure they're still intact because if he's not here, then it is my job to remember. I think of the way he wrapped his arms around my back and held me so tight it made me nervous and the way his breath felt in my ear. Right. When I go to the kitchen, I peer in the glass and I see he's some kind of salamander now. He's small. Ben, I whisper, do you remember me? Do you remember? His eyes roll up in his head and I dribble honey into the water. He used to love honey. He licks at it, and then he swims to the other end of the pan. This is the limit of my limits. Here it is. You don't ever know for sure where it is, and then you bump up against it, and bam, you're there. Because I cannot bear to look down into the water and not be able to find him at all, to search the tiny, clear waves with a microscope lens, and to locate my lover, the one-celled wonder, bloated and bordered, brainless, benign, heading clear and small like an eye floater into nothingness. I put him in the passenger seat of the car and drive him to the beach. Walking down to the sand, I nod at people on towels, laying their bodies out to the sun and wishing. At the water's edge, I stoop down and place the whole pan on the tip of a baby wave it floats well, a cooking boat, for someone to find washed up on shore and to make cookies in. A lucky catch for a poor soul with all the ingredients and no container. Then the salamander swims out. I wave to the water with both arms, big enough for him to see if he looks back. I turn around and walk back to the car. Sometimes I think he'll be washed up on the shore, a naked man with a startled look who has been to history and back. I keep my eyes on the newspaper. I make sure my phone number is listed. I walk around the block at night in case he doesn't quite remember which house it is. I feed the birds outside and sometimes, before I put my one self to bed, I place my hands around my skull to see if it's growing and wonder what of any use would fill it if it did. That was Marion Seldes reading Amy Bender's story, The Rememberer. I'm Hope Davis. For those of you listening who didn't get the chance to see Marion Seldes on stage, she was tall and elegant 
and always wore her hair in a loose bun. She dressed in various shades of lilac and deep purple. I worked with her twice when I was younger, once at the Williamstown Theatre Festival and once at Lincoln Center. Whenever Marion was introduced to a new, young cast member, she would take the person's hand in her two hands, look them straight in the eye, and say their name, and then she would bow her head and gracefully descend into a deep curtsy. I saw her do that many times. It was a very disarming greeting, and it was Marion's way of reminding us that treating one another with deep respect and love was the best way forward. No one's ego ever got out of control when Marion Seldes was in the room. So our Amy Bender story was about a woman clinging to simple memories, even after an extraordinary transformation. When we come back, a man lives a completely average life and becomes famous for it. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Hope Davis. If you're just joining us or missed part of our first story, we've got you covered. The entire show is on our website, selectedshorts.org. While there, tap the subscribe to podcast button and you'll find links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and others. And if you like what you hear, please share it. On this show, we're listening to stories about how we're seen and subsequently remembered by others. In our first piece, a woman watched her partner drift away while reminding herself of who he once was. In our next piece, Rumors About Me, a man wakes up one morning to discover that his life is an open book, whether he likes it or not. While the story was written before the prevalence of smartphones and the internet, it speaks to a quiet hope or fear that many of us probably have these days. That is, the idea that any ordinary person might have fame or infamy thrust upon them by some anonymous collective. This kind of attention might bring short-term rewards, but it's just as likely to haunt us in the future. Rumors About Me was written by Yasutaka Tsutsui. Tsutsui is a novelist and sci-fi author whose works include Paprika and The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. We should mention that over the course of his career, Tsutsui has touched on a number of taboo subjects. Some caused problems in his native Japan. Some were felt even in the States. While he has courted plenty of controversy and said some questionable things, we still felt this imaginative story was worth sharing. Reading this piece is the actor Kennedy Kanagawa, whose New York theater credits include Deki Does a Bronco and The Good Swimmer. As Shorts was unable to record live shows during the coronavirus pandemic, we asked Kennedy to record himself at home. This is why you won't hear the usual audience reactions to his reading. Don't worry, it won't make this unusual story any less remarkable. Now, here's Rumors About Me by Yasutaka Tsutsui, performed by Kennedy Kanagawa. I was surprised to hear my name mentioned on the evening news one day. And now other news, said the announcer. Earlier today, Tsutomu Morishita asked Akiko Mikawa out for a drink, but was turned down. Mikawa works as a secretary in the same company as Morishita. This is the fifth time Morishita has asked Mikawa out for a date. He's been refused on all but the first occasion. What? What? I slammed my cup down on the table as I looked on in disbelief. What was that? What did he say? 
My face appeared large on the TV screen. The newsreader continued, It's not yet clear why Mikawa continues to reject Morishita. Hiruma Sakamoto, a friend and work colleague of Mikawa, thinks it's because although Mikawa doesn't particularly dislike Morishita, she doesn't particularly like him either. Now a photo of Akiko Mikawa appeared on the screen. In view of this evidence, it's thought that Morishita failed to leave any impression at all on Mikawa during that original date. According to well-informed sources, Morishita went straight to his apartment after work today and is now eating a meal that he prepared by himself. Well, that's all we have on Tsutomu Morishita for today. Now let's go over to our correspondent at the Yakuyoke Hachiman Night Festival in Kobe. I imagine things are starting to heat up now, Mizuno-san? Yes, that's absolutely right. I sat there open-mouthed, staring at the screen blankly as the next item continued. I eventually came to my senses. What was that all about, I muttered to myself. I was hallucinating. That was it. I was seeing things. And hearing things. That was the only explanation. I mean... What would be the point in reporting that I'd asked Akiko Mikawa out for a drink and was so spectacularly rejected as always? The news value was zero. All the same, it seemed so real. The pictures of me and Akiko, the captions under the photographs, the newsreader's manner, everything. Don't be daft, I told myself, shaking my head vigorously. The news ended. I nodded to myself. A hallucination. Yes, that's what it was, I said. But hey, what a realistic hallucination. I laughed. My laughter reverberated around my tiny bedsit room. What if the news had been real, I wondered. What if Akiko Mikawa had seen it? What if my workmates had seen it? What would they have thought? I had myself in stitches just imagining their faces. Now I was laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> I climbed into bed, but still the laughter wouldn't subside. There was an article about me in the morning paper. Morishita rejected again. At around 4.40 yesterday afternoon, Tsutomu Morishita, 28, an employee of Kasumiyama Electric Industries, Sankocho Shinjuku, Tokyo, invited Akiko Mikawa, 23, a secretary at the same company, out for a drink after work. Mikawa refused, claiming she had to go home early. Morishita was wearing a red tie with green polka dots which he'd bought in a Shinjuku supermarket the previous day. Morishita later returned to his apartment in Higashicho Kichijoji and made his own dinner. He is thought to have gone to bed immediately after eating, as usual. This is the fourth time Morishita has been refused by Miss Mikawa. There was a picture of me next to the article, the same one as had been used on television the night before. But there was no picture of Akiko Mikawa. I was obviously the main subject of this story. I read the article four or five times while drinking a glass of milk. Then I tore the newspaper up and threw it into the bin. It's a conspiracy, I muttered. Someone's playing a practical joke on me. My God, all this just to have a laugh? Whoever it was, they'd need a lot of money. Even a single copy of a newspaper would be expensive to print. Who could it be? Who would go to such bizarre lengths just to get at me? I couldn't remember offending anyone that much. Perhaps it was someone else who fancied Akiko Mikawa. But what was the point? She'd done nothing but reject me. No, this must be someone really perverse, I thought. Trouble was, I couldn't think of anyone who could possibly be that perverse. Damn, I should have kept the newspaper, I thought on my way to the station. I regretted losing my temper. If I'd kept the newspaper, it might have helped me to ferret out the culprit. It would have been evidence once I'd found him. I forced myself onto the packed commuter train and found a place to stand in the middle of the carriage. I thought about all the people I knew. Then I caught sight of a newspaper being read by a man standing next to me. 
It was a different newspaper to mine, but it also had an article about me. And this time, it occupied two whole columns. I gasped audibly. The man looked up from his newspaper, glanced back at the photograph next to the article, then looked up again and stared at me. I hurriedly turned my back. Who had done this? I was livid. The villain had actually replaced all the morning papers along this line with fake ones. He wanted to make sure the article was seen not just by me, but also by everyone else who took the same train as me. In that way, he could make a complete fool of me and vilify my name. And of course, the ultimate intention was to make me lose my mind. I filled my lungs with the stuffy air inside the packed train. The bastard. I wasn't going to play his game. No one was going to drive me mad. I laughed aloud. Ha 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 ha! Who's going mad then? I shouted. I'm not! <laughs> At Shinjuku Station, an announcer was barking over the loudspeakers. Shinjuku, this is Shinjuku. Change here for the Yamanote line. The train on platform 2 is for Yotsuya, Kanda, and Tokyo. By the way, Tsutomo Morishita was on this train today. All he's had this morning is a glass of milk. Mind the doors. There was nothing unusual about the atmosphere at work, but as soon as I walked into the office, seven or eight of my colleagues started tapping each other on the shoulder, giving me sidelong glances and whispering to each other. They must be talking about me, I concluded. After clearing a few memos from my desk, I went over to admin. In the office were four secretaries, one of them Akiko Mikawa. As soon as they saw me, they changed their expressions and started typing feverishly on their keyboards. It was quite obvious they hadn't been working but talking about me until that very moment. Ignoring Akiko, I called Hiruma Sakamoto out to the corridor. Was someone inquiring after me yesterday? I asked. She looked as if she were about to cry. I didn't know they were journalists. I didn't think they'd put it all in the newspaper like that. They who? There were four or five men. Of course, I didn't know any of them. They accosted me on my way home and asked all sorts of things about you. Hmm. That got me thinking. The conspiracy was clearly much more sinister than I'd imagined. Just after lunch, I was called to the chief clerk's desk. After issuing a new work assignment, he gave me a knowing look. I read about it in the paper, he whispered. Oh, I answered, not knowing quite what to say. The chief clerk grinned and brought his face close to mine. You can't trust the media, can you? But don't worry. Personally, I couldn't be less interested. The liar. He was loving every minute. My new assignment took me out of the building and into a taxi. The young cabbie had his radio on at full volume. Ginza, 2nd Street, please. Eh? What's that? He couldn't hear me for the music. Ginza, 2nd Street. Ginza what street? 2nd, Ginza, 2nd Street. The cabbie finally understood and the taxi set off. The music ended. An announcer started talking. This is the news at 2 o'clock. The government this morning ordered all laughing bags to be confiscated from shops throughout the country. Police nationwide have been instructed to clamp down on the illegal manufacture or sale of the bags. Laughing bags are novelty toys that emit a hysterical laughing noise. Today's move follows a dramatic surge in social unrest caused by nuisance calls using the bags. Calls are often made at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. When the victim answers, the caller makes the bag laugh into the telephone. There have also been reports of a phenomenon known as laughing bag rage. Tsutomu Morishita arrived at work on time this morning. Soon after entering his office, he went to the administration department and called Hiruma Sakamoto out to the corridor, where the two were observed in conversation. The precise nature of their discussion is not yet clear. Details will be announced as soon as they're known. Later, Morishita went out on company business and is currently traveling towards central Tokyo in a taxi.
The Ministry of Health and Welfare today released the results of a nationwide survey of pachinko game machine users and designers. The results suggest that playing pachinko after eating eels can be very detrimental to health. According to Tadashi Akanemura, chairman of the National Federation of Game Machine Designers, the cabbie switched the radio off. He probably wasn't too interested in the news. Was my name really that well known? I closed my eyes and thought about it. Could I really be so famous when there was nothing distinctive about me at all? After all, I was nothing but a lowly office worker, a company employee. No one as unremarkable as me could possibly merit attention in the world of the media. So just how well known was my name, my face? Take this cabbie. Was he aware that the person mentioned on the news just now was none other than the passenger in the back of his cab? Had he recognized me as soon as I got in, or did he actually know nothing about me at all? I decided to test him. Uh, driver, do you know who I am? He checked me out in the rearview mirror. Have we met somewhere, sir? No, I don't think so. Well then, I don't know you, do I? There was a pause. You're not one of them celebrities, are you, sir? He asked at length. No, just an office worker. You been on telly? No, never. The cabbie smiled wryly. Then I'm not going to know you, am I, sir? No, I replied. I suppose not. I thought back over the radio news I'd just heard. The announcer knew that I was in a taxi heading for central Tokyo. That meant someone must be following me. They must be watching my every move. I turned and looked through the rear window. The road was full of cars. It was impossible to know which of them was following us. Come to think of it, they all looked pretty suspicious now. I think someone's following us, I said to the cabbie. Can you shake them off? That's a lot to ask, sir, if you don't mind me saying so, he said with a grimace. Unless you know which car it is. Anyway, you'd have a job shaking anyone off in this traffic. I think it's that black Nissan. Look, it's got a newspaper company flag on it. Well, all right, sir, if you insist, though personally, I just think you're being paranoid, sir. I'm perfectly sane, I countered hastily. Don't go taking me to the madhouse, will you? The taxi meandered and roamed aimlessly for a while as if driven by a sleepwalker before finally arriving in Ginza 2nd Street. Well, I lost the black Nissan at least, the cabbie said with a broad smile. That must be worth something. I reluctantly added 500 yen to the fare on the meter. On entering the office of our client in Ginza 2nd Street, I was greeted with uncommon courtesy by a female receptionist whose face I recognized. She led me to a special reception lounge for particularly valued guests. Normally, I'd be called to the duty clerk's desk and would stand there talking while he remained seated. I sat myself on a sofa in the spacious lounge and was fidgeting in some discomfort when, to my surprise, the department director walked in with his assistant. They both started greeting me with particular formality. Suzuki is always most glad of your kind assistance, said the department director, bowing deeply. Suzuki was the duty clerk who usually saw me. As I sat there, bewildered, the department director and his assistant, far from discussing the business at hand, started to heap sycophantic praise on me. They admired my tie, flattered my dress sense, and even started extolling my good looks. In my embarrassment, I hurriedly handed over the documents I'd been given by the chief clerk, passed on his message, and quickly took my leave. As I left the building, I noticed the same taxi still waiting there by the pavement. The young cabbie thrust his head through the side window. Sir, he called. Still here, are you? I said. Well, that's perfect. Take me back to Shinjuku, will you? I was just settling into the rear seat when the cabbie thrust a 500 yen note toward me. You're gonna have this back, sir, he said. You've gotta be joking. Is something the matter? 
I switched the radio back on, didn't I? And they were talking about you, weren't they? They said you'd been carried off by a rogue taxi driver who'd deliberately taken you out of your way and squeezed 500 yen out of you for it. They even mentioned my name. Now I understood why I'd been treated so courteously at the client's office. I told you, didn't I? We were being followed. Whatever. You can have your 500 yen back. Go on, you keep it. No way. Have it back. Well, alright. If that's the way you feel. Anyway, will you take me to Shinjuku now? How could I say no? Next thing they'd say I refused a fare. And with that, he started off towards Shinjuku. I was gradually realizing that the plot to drive me out of my mind was unimaginably massive in scale. Apart from anything else, my enemy appeared to have bought off the mass media. Who on earth could it be? And what was his motive? Why would anyone want to do something like this? All I could do was to follow the flow for now. It would be virtually impossible to uncover the mastermind at the bottom of it. Even if I caught one of my pursuers, he would just be a small fry. He wouldn't know who the mastermind was. That was the big cheese. Big enough to buy off the media, at least. I'm not trying to make excuses, sir, the cabbie said suddenly. But I did lose that black Nissan. I did, really. I'm sure you did, I replied. But I reckon it's not that simple anyway. They're not just following me in a car. They've probably even bugged this taxi. Hold on a minute, I thought. How did I know I could trust this driver anyway? He could be in on it too. Otherwise, how did they know the tip was 500 yen? I suddenly noticed a helicopter circling above us. It was flying at dangerously low altitude, almost skimming the tops of the buildings. I'm sure I saw that chopper on the way out, sir, said the driver, squinting up at the sky. Maybe they're the ones that are following you. There was a thunderous crash, and a blood-colored flash of light streaked across the sky. I looked up to see fireballs flying in all directions. The helicopter had crashed into the top floor of a multi-story building. The pilot must have been paying too much attention to events on the ground and lost control. Serves him right. <laughs> the cabbie laughed insanely as he sped away from the scene. He already had the look of a deranged man. I knew I'd be in danger if I stayed in the taxi any longer. Uh, I've just remembered something, I said. Could you let me off here? Actually, I'd remembered there was a small psychiatric clinic nearby. Where are you going? the cabbie asked. That's my business, I answered. Well, I'm going straight home to sleep, he continued. He looked pale-faced as he took the fare from me. That decided it. He wasn't one of them. Good idea, I said as I stepped out into the unbearable heat. I entered the clinic and sat in the waiting room for about 20 minutes. I was called into the treatment room where the doctor was looking at a television on a desk by the window. News of the helicopter crash was just coming through. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, even the sky's getting congested now, the doctor muttered as he turned to face me. And of course, there'll be more patients as a result, but they won't come for treatment until it's too late, oh no, another bad characteristic of people today. Yes, you're right, I said with a nod of agreement. I didn't want to seem pushy, but jumped straight in and started to explain my situation anyway. I was supposed to be at work, after all, and didn't have much time. They suddenly started talking about me on TV last night, and there were articles about me in this morning's papers. They made an announcement about me at the station. I was even mentioned on the radio. At work, they're all talking about me in whispers. I'm sure they've bugged my house and the taxis I travel in. In fact, I'm being followed. It's a major operation. That helicopter on the news crashed while it was following me. The doctor stared at me with a pitiful expression as I continued my story. Finally, however, he made a gesture to signal that he could take no more. Why didn't you come to me sooner, he moaned. But no, you only come when your condition is already too serious. You give me no option but to admit you to hospital immediately, by force if necessary, for there's no doubt about it at all. You are suffering from a persecution complex, a victim complex. 
In other words, total paranoid delusion. A classic case of schizophrenia. Luckily, there's no loss of personality as yet. I'll admit you to the university hospital right away. Leave it to me. Wait a minute, I said. I was in a hurry. I didn't explain myself well. I had a feeling you wouldn't believe me. I'm not a good talker. I can't express things logically. But everything I've just said, it's nothing to do with any complex. It's plain fact. Yet, I'm just an ordinary office worker, certainly not famous enough to be followed by the media. No, however you look at it, these media people who are tailing me, reporting about me, yes, even someone as ordinary as me, they're the ones who are insane. I just came here to ask your advice, you know, what you think I should do to cope with all this. You've written books about the pathological tendencies of society and the perversion of the media. You've talked about it on TV. That's why I came here. I hoped you could tell me how to adapt to this abnormal environment without losing my sanity. The doctor shook his head and picked up the telephone. Everything you've said merely proves how serious your case is. His hand stopped dead as he was dialing. His eyes were now riveted to the picture on his desktop television. It was a picture of me. The doctor opened his eyes wide. Some news just in on the Morishita case, said the announcer. After leaving his client's office in Ginza 2nd Street, Tsutomu Morishita, an employee of Kasumiyama Electric Industries, took another taxi, apparently intending to return to his office in Shinjuku. But he suddenly appeared to change his mind, left the taxi, and entered the Takehara Psychiatric Clinic in Yotsuya. A photograph of the clinic's main entrance appeared on the screen. It is not yet known why Morishita entered the clinic. The doctor stared at me with glazed eyes as if in admiration. His mouth was half open, his tongue dancing about in excitement. So you must be someone famous then? No, not at all. I pointed to the television. He just said it, didn't he? I'm a company employee, just an ordinary person. But in spite of that, my every move is being watched and broadcast to the entire nation. What's that if not abnormal? Well, you asked me how you could adapt to an abnormal environment without losing your sanity. As he spoke, the doctor slowly got up and moved toward a glass cabinet crammed with bottles of drugs. But I find your question contradictory. An environment is created by the people who live in it. You, then, are one of the people who are creating your abnormal environment. In other words, if your environment is abnormal, then you must be abnormal too. He opened a brown bottle labeled sedatives and tipped a quantity of white pills into his hand. The doctor greedily stuffed the pills into his mouth as he continued to speak. Therefore, if you insist in asserting your own sanity, it proves, conversely, that your environment is in fact normal, but that you alone are abnormal. If you consider your environment to be abnormal, then by all means, lose your mind. He took a bottle of ink from his desk and gulped down the blue-black liquid until it was empty. Then he collapsed onto the couch beside him and fell asleep. On a mad, mad morning in May, two lovers drank dry a bottle of bright blue ink, hummed a nurse as she entered the treatment room, completely naked. In one of her hands, she held a huge bottle of ink from which she took the occasional swig before draping her body over the doctors on the couch. So I left the clinic without receiving a satisfactory answer. The sun was going down, but it still felt oppressively hot. As soon as I was back at my desk, Akikomikawa called me from admin. Thank you for inviting me out yesterday, she said. I'm really sorry I couldn't make it. That's all right, I replied with undue reserve. She said nothing for a while. She was waiting for me to ask her out again. She'd obviously noticed that public opinion was starting to shift toward me and was probably worried that she would now become the butt of media vitriol. She'd called me in the hope of accepting an invitation. We both remained silent for a few moments. I sighed before plunging in. How about today, then? I'd love to. 
All right, I'll see you in the San Jose after work. News of our arrangement must have been reported immediately, for as I walked into the San Jose, it seemed unusually busy. Normally, it wasn't that kind of place. All the customers were couples, making it impossible to tell which were reporters and which merely curiosity seekers. But whichever they were, they'd obviously come with one aim in mind, to observe my date with Akiko. While of course feigning a lack of interest, they would give themselves away by glancing over at us every now and again. Needless to say, for the whole hour that Akiko and I were in the cafe, we sat in stony silence with our drinks in front of us. For if we discussed anything even slightly unusual, it would immediately have been reported in a three-column article with a massive headline. We parted at Shinjuku Station, and I returned to my apartment. I hesitated for a while, but eventually switched on the television. In a change to the evening's schedule, they were showing a panel discussion. Now I think we come to a very difficult question at this point, said the presenter. If events continue to unfold at this pace, when do you think Morishita and Mikawa might be booking into a hotel? Or do you think it might not come to that? Professor Ohara? Oh, well, uh, this Akiko is a bit of a shy filly, if you know what I mean, said Professor Ohara, a racing expert. It all depends on Morishita's persistence and determination in the saddle. It's all in the stars, said a female astrologer, holding up a card. It'll be toward the end of the month. Why on earth would we want to go to a hotel, I wondered. If we did, our voices would be recorded and our positions photographed. The whole thing would be reported all over the country, exposing us to universal shame. Things continued in a similar vein for the next few days. Then, on my way to work one morning, my heart sank when I saw an ad for a women's magazine inside the packed commuter train. Read all about it, Tsutomu and Akiko's cafe date, it said in large bold letters next to a photo of my face. And underneath that, in smaller type, Morishita masturbated twice that night. I was boiling with rage and grating my teeth. Don't I have a right to privacy? I shouted. I'll sue for defamation. Who cares how many times I did it? On my arrival at work, I went straight to the chief clerk's desk and presented him with a copy of the magazine which I'd bought at the station. I'd like permission to leave the office on personal business. I assume you know about this article. I'm going to complain to the company that publishes this magazine. Of course, I understand how you feel, the chief clerk said in a faltering voice, evidently trying to pacify me. But there's surely no point in losing your temper, is there? The media are too powerful. Of course I'd always give you permission to leave the office on personal business. As you know, I'm quite flexible when it comes to that kind of thing. I'm sure you're aware of that. Yes, I'm sure you are. But I'm just concerned for your welfare, you see. I agree, it's pretty disgraceful. This article, yes, it's disgraceful. Yes, I can certainly sympathize with your predicament. It really is disgraceful. Yes, utterly disgraceful. A number of my colleagues had come to stand around me and the chief clerk. They all started to sympathize with me in unison. Some of the female clerks were actually weeping. But I wasn't going to be taken in by that. Behind my back, they were all swapping nasty rumors about me and cooperating with the media coverage. Theirs was the inevitable duplicity of those who surround the famous. Even the company president came over to have his say, so I abandoned the idea of complaining to the publishing company. Now, the strange thing was that, even though I'd ranted and raved like a lunatic, not a word of it was reported in the TV news that day, nor was it mentioned in the evening paper. So I took a long, hard look at the way in which news about me had been reported over the past few days. Everything I did in awareness of the media was omitted from the news. For example, the fact that I'd tried to shake off my pursuers, or that I'd lost my temper and shouted about the magazine article, these were either ignored altogether or reported in a different context. Not only that, but news of the helicopter that crashed into a building while following me was reported as if it were a completely unrelated event. 
In this respect, the coverage was quite different to that usually given to celebrities. To be more exact, the media were presenting a world in which they themselves didn't exist. But therein lay the reason why the news about me was gradually growing in scale, why people were taking an interest in this news. I'd become a nobody who was known by everybody. One day, for example, the morning paper has an article about me written with a huge headline straddling six columns on the front page. Tsutomu Morishita eats eels, first time in 16 months. Occasionally, I'd stumble across people secretly trying to collect information about me. After using the company toilet, I would half open the door to the next cubicle, only to discover a knot of reporters crammed into it, tape recorders and cameras dangling from their shoulders. Or on my way home, I'd rummage about in the bushes with the tip of my umbrella, only for a TV announcer holding a microphone to dash out and run away shrieking. Once, while watching television in my apartment, I suddenly leapt up and slid open the door of my built-in wardrobe. A huddle of four or five journalists tumbled out of the wardrobe onto the floor. Another time, I pushed up a ceiling panel with a broom handle. A photographer hiding in the attic in his frantic effort to escape put his foot through the ceiling and fell to the ground. I even pulled up my tatami matting and looked under the floorboards, a melee of reporters and hangers-on crouching in the floor well, hollered and fled in panic. Of course, none of this was ever reported in the news. The media only ever covered my dull, everyday affairs. These were blown up into major headliners, even surpassing politics, world events, the economy, and other more important topics. For example, TM buys a tailored suit in monthly installments. Another date for Tsutomu Morishita. Revealed Tsutomu's weekly diet. Who does Morishita really want? Akikomikawa or someone else? TM slams co-worker Fujita, 25, over paperwork error. Shock! Moza's sex life! Tsutomu Morishita, payday today. What will Tsutomu do with this month's pay? Morishita buys another pair of socks, blue-gray, 350 yen. In the end, there were even expert analysts who knew everything that could be known about me. I was quite amazed. One day, I found my photograph on the front of a weekly magazine published by a newspaper company. A color photograph. Of course, I had no idea when it was taken. It showed me on my way to work among a group of office workers. It was quite a good picture, actually, if I say so myself. Writing articles about me was one thing. But if they wanted to use me as a model on their cover, I would expect the newspaper company to thank me at the very least. I waited three days, four days after the magazine had been published, but still heard nothing. Finally, I'd had enough. On my way back from a client one day, I paid them a visit. Normally, I only had to walk down the street for everyone to be turning and gawking at me, but as soon as I entered the newspaper company building, I was treated with total indifference by receptionists and staff alike. It was almost as if they'd never heard of me. I regretted going there at all as I waited in the reception lounge. Then a man with a sour face appeared and identified himself as the magazine's assistant chief editor. Listen, Mr. Morishita, we'd prefer it if you didn't come here, you understand. I thought so, because I'm supposed to be a nobody who has no connection with the media? You're not talented or topical. You're not even famous, so you have no business coming here. But I am, aren't I? I'm famous now. You're merely a nobody whose life was reported in the media. You were supposed to remain anonymous, even when people recognized you. We thought you'd understand that well enough. So why did a nobody like me have to be reported on the news? The assistant chief editor sighed wearily. How should I know? I suppose someone decided you were newsworthy. 
Someone? You mean someone in the media? What idiot had that idea? Idiot, you say? As if there's just one person at the bottom of it. In that case, why are all the media companies falling over each other to follow you? The media don't need to be told. They'll only follow someone if they think he's got news value. News value? In the daily life of a nobody? Alright then, you tell me. What news items would you consider important? Well, something about the weather forecast being wrong? A war going on somewhere? A ten-minute power failure? An airplane crashes, killing a thousand? The price of apples goes up? Someone's bitten by a dog? A dog is caught shoplifting in a supermarket? The U.S. president is caught shoplifting? Man lands on Mars, an actress gets divorced, the war to end all wars is about to start, a company profits from pollution, another newspaper company makes a profit, the assistant chief editor watched me vacantly as I continued, but now he shook his head with a look of pity. So those are the things you regard as big news, are they? Aren't they? I replied in some confusion. He waved his hand with an air of irritation. No, 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 no. Of course, they could be made into big news. That's why they're duly reported. But at the same time, we report on the life of an ordinary office worker. Anything can become big news if the media report it, he said, nodding. News value only arises after something's been reported. But you by coming here today, have completely destroyed your own news value. That doesn't bother me. I see. He slapped his thigh. Actually, it doesn't bother us either. I hurried back to the office. From my desk, I immediately phoned through to admin. Akiko, I said loudly, will you go to a hotel with me tonight? I could hear Akiko catching her breath at the other end of the line. For a moment, the whole room fell silent. My colleagues and the chief clerk gawped at me in amazement. Eventually, she replied, Yes, of course, she sobbed. And so that night, Akiko and I stayed in a hotel. It was the shabbiest, seediest hotel in a street full of tasteless neon signs. As I'd expected, there was no mention of it in the newspapers, nor was it reported on the TV news. From that day on, news about me vanished from the media. In my place came a middle-aged office worker, the type that can be found just about everywhere. Thin, short, two children, lives on a suburban estate, a clerk in a shipbuilding company. I'd once again become a nobody, this time for real. Sometime later, I asked Akiko out again as a test. Would she like to have coffee with me after work? Of course, she refused. But I was satisfied. Now I knew what sort of person she was. A month later, nobody could remember my face. But even then, people would occasionally stop and give me curious looks when they saw me. On my way home one day, two girls were sitting opposite me on the train. One of them gave me that look and started whispering to the other. Hey, haven't I seen him somewhere before? She said, nudging her friend with her elbow. What was it he did? The other girl looked at me with a bored expression. After a moment, she answered in a tone of utter boredom. Oh, him. Yeah. He was just a nobody. You just heard Yasutaka Tsutsui's story, Rumors About Me, read by the actor Kennedy Kanagawa. I'm Hope Davis. That story makes me think of that old Andy Warhol quote that in the future everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. Well, it's the future, and the internet seems to fulfill some version of Warhol's idea, even if the web shrinks that 15 minutes to something more like 15 seconds. And finally, 
How would you like to be remembered? As a world leader or a humble citrus fruit? In award-winning fantasy writer Benjamin Rosenbaum's gentle tale, An Orange Rules the World. Reader John Cameron Mitchell is best known for his musical Hedwig and the Angry Inch, among many stage, television, and screen credits. Here he is to read The Orange. An orange ruled the world. It was an unexpected thing. The temporary abdication of heavenly providence entrusting the whole matter to a simple orange. The orange in a grove in Florida humbly accepted the honor. The other oranges, the birds, and the men in their tractors wept with joy. The tractor's motors rumbled hymns of praise. Airplane pilots passing over would circle the grove and tell their passengers, below us is the grove where the orange, who rules the world, grows on a simple branch, and the passengers would be silent with awe. The governor of Florida declared every day a holiday. (laughs) On summer afternoons, the Dalai Lama would come to the grove and sit with the orange and talk about life. When the time came for the orange to be picked, none of the migrant workers would do it. They went on strike. The foreman wept. The other orange swore they would turn sour. But the orange who ruled the world said, no, my friends, it is time. Finally, a man from Chicago with a heart as windy and cold as Lake Michigan in wintertime was brought in. He put down his briefcase, climbed up on a ladder, and picked the orange. The birds were silent. The clouds had gone away. The orange thanked the man from Chicago. They say that when the orange went through the national produce processing and distribution system, (laughs) certain machines turned to gold. (laughs) Truck drivers had epiphanies. Aging rural store managers called their estranged lesbian daughters on Wall Street, and all was forgiven. (laughs) I bought the orange, who ruled the world, for 39 cents at Safeway three days ago, and for three days... He sat in my fruit basket and was my teacher. Today he told me, it is time. And I ate him. (laughs) Now we are on our own again. That was John Cameron Mitchell performing Benjamin Rosenbaum's The Orange. I'm Hope Davis. I'm going to look more carefully at my breakfast tray from now on. That's our show. Three fantastical visions about how we are seen by others and how these people, intimates and the general public, may carry memories of us over time. If these stories made you think about your own public persona or your potential legacy, let us know. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm Hope Davis. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivian Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. 
Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Schubert Foundation, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodsons Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.